Hello and welcome to episode 121 of Meet the Farmers. I'm your host, Ben Eagle. And tonight I'm heading across the pond, virtually at least, to meet Iowa farmer Bill Northey. And I should just say that by pure planning on my part, the England-Denmark match has actually just kicked off. <laughs> so I must be one of the few Englishmen um, who is who is not who's yeah, spending his time not watching uh, not watching the football at the moment. Um, but for anyone else, um, if it wasn't Bill on tonight, then uh, yeah, I, I probably would have moved it. But I, I've been really, really looking forward to this chat. So um, really, really happy to have Bill on. Uh, Bill owns Northy Farms, um, growing corn and soybeans at Spirit Lake in Iowa. Uh, for 11 years, he was on the board of directors of the National Corn Growers Association in the States. And for another 11 years, um, he was Secretary of Agriculture for the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. Uh, from 2018 to earlier this year, um, he was Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA. Um, he's also a farm consultant. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on. And great to be on with you. Look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, can you tell me and the listeners, first of all, um, a bit about Iowa, uh, the landscape, the climate, uh, the people, what's going on over there? Sure. So um, Iowa, we, uh, we raise a lot of corn and soybeans in Iowa. Uh, we are definitely a farm state. Uh, we have about 3 million people just a little west of Chicago in the U.S., so right kind of in the middle north of the middle uh, in the U.S. and uh, 23 million acres um, out of the uh, 36 million acres in Iowa is corn and soybeans. Wow. Uh, we have some pasture ground, some hay ground, uh, certainly some farm woodlots and those kinds of things. So about 31 million acres of farms out of the 36 million acres. So uh, we don't have national parks or mountains or oceans uh, but we have a lot of corn and soybeans and we can really raise anything um, yep. here, but corn and soybeans is what we do very well. It's the most, it makes the most sense economically. Um, we, uh, we get cold in the winter. Uh, yep. We freeze our ground and, and uh, we plant uh, typically in April and May and harvest in uh, September, October, November. Okay. Um, and uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, cattle and hogs as well that goes along uh, with that uh, production of corn and soybeans because uh, they're great consumers. And typically uh, our prices were lower here because we had more production than what we needed. Now we also have ethanol plants as well, yeah. uh, largest uh, ethanol biodiesel producing state in the country as well. Um, what, about, uh, what about your life growing up? Uh, what was it like growing up around there? So um, we, uh, we raise corn and soybeans, also oats, um, other hay as well. We fed cattle. Uh, we had some hogs early on and then kind of concentrated on cattle feeding in Iowa. Typical kind of what you call an Iowa farmer feeder. Uh, so uh, uh, several hundred head of cattle actually dad grew it to the place where he had some outside yards and some inside yards, about a thousand head of cattle on hand, which is tiny compared to the big lots out there now yep. and in other places, but certainly a great way to go out, grow up chopping silage and making hay and oatage and hauling a lot of manure out to that farmland as well. And a great way to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously agriculture is in your blood. I mean, you, you did a degree in, in ag business at Iowa State University. Um, 
why did you choose to do that? And, and particularly maybe the, the business side. Yeah, I really didn't know necessarily that I was going to go home and farm. I loved agriculture being around it, but uh, my dad's a hard worker. Um, and uh, I, when, when I'd be home, we'd put a lot of hours in. I didn't know if I wanted that out of life. And, and actually, mm -hmm. we're a little bit of, too much alike almost. And and our personalities can rub. And so okay. I kind of thought I'd go off and do something else, maybe banking or ag banking. It'd all be ag, but yep. but something else in agriculture. Yep. Um, and then my between my junior and senior year in uh, college, uh, my grandpa, um, who was farming in the same area as my dad, they had farmed together and then they split off as my dad grew his operation and grandpa was happy with his operation came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in farming my ground? He was he was 81 years old, thinking that he ought to slow down someday. Yep. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and it was a wonderful experience. So I came home, started farming with him. Um, great to learn those lessons, maintained a great relationship with my dad. Um, and, uh, and so started farming with my grandfather, buying his machinery, renting his land. That was in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, so it was a challenging time in the early yeah. 80s to get started in agriculture in the U.S., like a lot of places. Um, and uh, certainly that family help allowed me to continue to stay in business during that time. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I want to turn to sort of challenges and opportunities, which you alluded to there. But but perhaps maybe comparing when you started your ag career um, to, to, to the changes that you've seen over that time. Um, have they been similar challenges and opportunities or, or have they shifted at all? You know, I, I think they have shifted. Um, some pieces are the same. It's always hard to start farming. It yeah. really is. It's hard to find land. You know, land was cheap during that time, or at least by the end of the 80s, not when I probably started because the end of the 70s, we had higher priced land and and land got cheaper and cheaper as the 80s went on because uh, the incomes were so much lower. Um, but I'll tell young people today that I watched a farm sell near me 160 acres for $600 an acre. Yep. It's probably worth at least $10,000 an acre now. Yep. And we couldn't put the money together or, or certainly weren't willing to put the money together for a down payment on that farm that, you know, within a handful of years could have paid for itself. Um None of us knew it. Yeah, I, I had exactly. watched so many Hindsight's times. a wonderful thing. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I'm also glad I didn't buy another farm about 10 years before that. That was $2,500 <laughs> an acre. That would have caused me to be a former farmer uh, yeah. in my 20s. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, there, there are times we benefit by not knowing and other times we wish we had known at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, what would your message to to um, young entrants be now? Anyone who's thinking about getting into the industry? I, I really do believe whatever a person's doing, but certainly in farming, you have to have a passion for it, and you have to be willing to sacrifice to be able to build. And so that means, you know, if you make a dime, you, you save most of it because you're going to need that to be able to 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 build and build equity. And it takes a lot of equity in agriculture and it takes a long time to build it. Yep. And your friends will maybe pull in a boat behind their, behind their car and, <laughs> and, 
and you'll be glad to ride in their boat. Um, <laughs> but you need to be able to buy a secondhand tractor and you need to be able to build it, build relationships, work with others, um, share, uh, learn, grow. Um, life is, it, it, sometimes it goes faster than a person thinks, um, but, it, but there's also changes that happen over time when you're, when you're young, it feels like if something doesn't happen in the next three months, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and yet, you know, if you let it build, um, my grandfather would certainly say he didn't see himself when he started farming in the 1930s uh, during the Depression era, buying some farms that he would ever end up at the place where he had to think about estate planning to manage the land that he yeah. put together. But it happens a day at a time. Yeah. and let those days work but 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 you have to you have to have the passion for it because there's going to be tough days too hmm. great advice um so i'm going to ask the question now that, that's on everyone's lips at the moment how did you become secretary of agriculture for iowa <laughs> well it uh in in uh, some of our states about a dozen states in the u.s every state has a secretary director commissioner of ag um and uh, we all have departments of ag that all look different because they were yep. created by states at different times. And yep. um, North Carolina has 2,500 employees in their department of ag. We had 400. Um, yeah. uh, we, I know some states that are less than 100. Wow. In Iowa, we elect a secretary of agriculture. So you run for office. Okay. Um, and in 2005, I had I'd gone through my time at at Iowa National Corn Growers Association, yep. had gone and, and uh, uh, taken courses uh, and earned a master's in business administration and kind of thought I was ready to step up to, to try to run for office as Secretary of Agriculture um, and ran and you just got to get votes. You know, you, 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 I ran as a Republican, so you run for a primary um, to become the candidate of that party and that's an election. Uh, and then I ran in the general as well, won that first race by 25,000 votes out of a million. Wow. Um, so in wow. Iowa, everybody votes for their secretary of agriculture. Okay. Uh, a whole lot of folks that don't care who their secretary of agriculture are, and a whole lot of folks that do, you know, farmers yep. that, that do. And so you've got to figure out how to appeal to those that do, how to be familiar to those that don't care about yeah. it. Yeah, that that's really interesting, actually. And I mean, what drives you with that? And I mean, did you did you always think about maybe going into some sort of public office? My father had been active. My my grandfather on my mom's side had been president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, which is okay. um, the farmers' union essentially of the U.S. It's a it's the largest farm organization uh, in most of our states. Um, and so that public service piece was interesting. I don't know that I knew that I was going to do that. Um, and this came about, in fact, I would say there were some that would have said that secretary of ag position wasn't really a, a prominent position. Um, it, was, it was one of five elected positions in the state of Iowa. It, but but it manages a department. It doesn't set its own budget. It doesn't really have policy pieces where you're delivering many dollars to producers. It's got a lot of regulatory functions. But for me, I looked at it and said, wait a yeah. minute, we're talking about Iowa. It's a number two state. We have $30 billion worth yeah. of 
ag sales every year, you know, do the right thing. It'll provide you some opportunities to do some good things, even if it's not about things within your department. It's also the voice of the farmer. Um, and I benefited by others not thinking it was a very high profile <laughs> job. I would have lost that first election had somebody really prominent been running for it. Um, and so um, it, and it really did turn out that way. I felt like I, I grew in it. Um, the position grew to the place that when I left, um, I had six guys running for my position uh, from my party, from the Republican Party that were all good. All okay. would say they, I, I'd say they had more experience than I did when I ran back in 2006. And that was a real kind of a warm feeling for me that yep. people appreciated the job, that that it could be something worthy of their time. Yeah. I mean, clearly through your time at the National Corn Growers Association, you you gained quite a broad outlook on on on, on, on a sort of large overview level. But I mean, from that that job in Iowa, um, what did you learn personally at that at that time? Was there anything anything new that 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 that, that took you forward? There were some pieces. So number one, I learned a lot more about Iowa agriculture at the time. I, I knew a little bit about farming in Northwest Iowa, my part of the world, yeah. and corn and soybeans and cattle uh, and pigs. Um, but I learned about the other things we do in Iowa, from eggs to conservation to lots yeah. of other things. We have we're divided up in Iowa in counties. We have 99 counties across the state. Okay. Um, and one of the do things they, do, that some, do they not think about making making the 100th. Well, it, they didn't. I, I don't know why that was. Um, just so that we sort out the people that would have guessed 100. You know, evidently, I don't know what it is. Um, but uh, one of the things that we do, um, because we have some political leaders have done it um, as, as political participants out there to show our willingness to engage the state, we visit every one of those counties every year. So... Um, we have a senator, Senator Grassley in Iowa, who's a longtime senator, and, and that would typically be called the full Grassley. It's doing 99 counties every year. And I did that for the 11 years wow. that I was secretary of ag. And I would still see places after 11 years of going to these counties, often many times in a year, that I had never seen before. Yeah. Interesting businesses in agriculture and interesting work being done. Um, as well as I think I certainly gained, and so I was the ad, more of an advocate in Farm Bureau or Corn Growers Association of a farmer in at Department of Agriculture is more around implementation. How do you put a program together, not just advocate for a program, but actually put a conservation program together? Um, we, we did a, a a voluntary water quality initiative in Iowa that really engaged our producers to a greater degree, coordinated with Iowa State University, other departments in, in state government, our farm groups as well, and promoted cover crops and no-till, other kind of conservation. Okay. We have this very rich topsoil yep. that can leak a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus, get yep. into our streams, cause issues, both here and all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and we need to be able to address that, but I still think it's best done by decision makers on their own farm rather than government. So how do we encourage as government, 
those farmers to engage in that practice. Hmm. Um, so implementing that, we also had an outbreak of avian influenza in Iowa. I mentioned we have um, not very many broilers in Iowa. We have about 10 million turkeys in Iowa, uh, but we have a lot of layers. We have about yeah. 60 million layers yeah. in Iowa. Yeah. And uh, we lost um, about half of those wow. to avian influenza that year, you know, kind of farm by farm, trying to stop the thing um, and coordinating with U.S. Department of Agriculture and their animal plant health inspection service and others. Um, there are a lot of kind of emergency management, engaging, partnering uh, pieces that were very constructive for me to be aware of. Um, so it was really interesting experience. I, I certainly believe that it's a secretary, director, commissioner job in a state is one of the best jobs, whether you're yeah. elected or appointed, you, you get to work with great people. You learn about your agriculture. It's not very political. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you run for office and you have to be elected, but, but you're not making partisan decisions yeah. that are very different from one part or the other, you're just trying to help agriculture. And so you don't have some of that baggage from politics mm. and yet you're, you know, you're around it and you can influence it as well. Hmm. That leads us on to, because I mean, ultimately you became undersecretary for farm production and conservation at the USDA. Um, what did that role involve? Um, how did that come about? And, and what do you think you achieved during your tenure there? Well, um, so in a, a president appoints a secretary of agriculture at, at USDA and a secretary then builds his team. Uh, in my case, it was Secretary Sonny Perdue, uh, who was secretary of agriculture. And uh, as he was getting ready for the job, it requires a Senate confirmation and he hadn't been confirmed yet. But as he was getting ready, he was thinking about his team. Um, and uh, I'm sure he's got some kind of short list of folks and that may be a thousand people long uh, that he's looking at but I was one of those folks on it and um, um, and, and we sat down and talked and, and just talked about kind of more about philosophy of government how it needs to serve the people what customer service is as it relates to government uh, kind of some visions that he had for the Department of Agriculture and uh I really like the vision that he was laying out. Um, I, I told somebody the other day, you know, actually he probably was my first boss. I guess I had a boss when I was <laughs> working for my dad back at the farm. Yeah. But other than that, um, I farmed on my own. Um, I was, you know, in an association where I guess you have lots of bosses because you have members. And I was in the Department of Ag in Iowa, so you have lots of voters that are bosses, but not purely one boss. And in this case, um, Secretary Purdue was the closest thing I had to it, and I couldn't ask for anything better. Um, so he then picks a team. So at USDA, you have a secretary, a deputy secretary of agriculture, and then you have eight undersecretaries, all responsible for parts of USDA. Yep. Um, the part that I was at, as you said, was uh, farm production and conservation. That was agencies called the Farm Service Agency, which is our farm program agency, runs our conservation reserve program, 10-year program, our farm support payments like our coronavirus assistance payments, our trade 
payments and other payments like that. Also NRCS, our Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is our conservation programs um, and uh, all the cost share that's involved in that where we pay farmers part of the cost of putting a practice on the ground. Um, and then the risk management agency, which is crop insurance. Okay. Um, and so crop insurance is actually delivered through private companies, but, but it's set up through this risk management agency that sets the rules. Um, we cover about $120 billion worth of crop um, uh, covered in, in, uh, in the United States, about $10 billion of premium each year and indemnity that's paid on losses. Um, so that's actually a new combination of agencies that the okay. secretary put together. Um, so it was fun to kind of bring those together, even <laughs> though those are all folks that are, you know, the farmers working with all the time. Yeah. Uh, they didn't always have the same undersecretary before. Okay. So. Let's let's look at U.S. farming more broadly here. So, I mean, from your point of view, I mean, what are the key challenges that U.S. farmers will face over the next few years? Obviously, it's been, I mean, especially there have been immense challenges over the last 12 months. But on a broader scale, um, what, what, how would you categorize the challenges uh, that are coming? Well, always, without knowing what the economics are, economics are always a challenge on the farm. Right now, we happen to have better grain prices. And that yep. puts challenges on our livestock folks yep. and, and others when that all happens. Um, but this cycles and suddenly, you know, we have higher input prices for that, those, those grain crops. And, and if prices soften up there, then suddenly those folks can... Uh, go through some economic challenges as well. So we'll always have that. But the amount of technology that's coming in agriculture right now is a real challenge for producers to sort through because some of it's gonna be really valuable. We can't afford all of it, either in the amount of time or the dollars that it takes. And how do we sort that out? Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing is that we all see the conversation around sustainability and carbon and, and, and certainly consumers on, on both sides of the ocean care about um, where their food's coming from in a greater way that may or may not understand um, what goes into that, but, but they're gonna care about it. And so we have to be listening uh, and understanding what that means. And so for us to carry a carbon score along with the economics of our milk or meat or grain um, is going to just complicate life for all of us. Uh, figuring out what that means, how does that work, uh, what's the consumer want, and what if they want something different tomorrow after we invested in uh, a significant investment yesterday. Um, and so all those things, I think, are changing under our feet at the same time. Hmm. Um this wasn't actually on our list of original questions, but while, while I've got you on, I'm really interested in, in your perspective on both US-UK trade and, and US trade with the rest of Europe in terms of priorities. Um, and uh, what, what what would you say is a, is a broad, and this is and in a non-partisan way, uh, what, is, uh, what, what, what would be US priorities looking at the UK and European markets in terms of trade right now? Well, I... I certainly think U.S. has looked at, you know, we've struggled with 
with uh, trade with Europe on lots of levels, certainly the ag trade. Um, and, uh, you know, we could argue about how, who created what problems and other kinds of things. But it, I, I think many in the U.S. looked at Brexit as an opportunity to be mm -hmm. able to kind of reset with the U.K. Okay. Um, and be able to figure that out. Now, I pay it enough attention to, to the ag press in, in the UK to know that that's a worry to the ag community within the UK. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I understand that. Um, I, I really don't think that, that that's going to be a, a huge change if we could create better trade between our countries. Um, because I certainly think folks on, on both sides of the pond, you know, like their local food and like the things that they're used to. And, and, and yet at the same token, I think there could be some benefits by increased trade, but I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Um, I mean, I, let's turn, turn back to your side of, of the pond. How do you see U.S. ag policy um, shaping up over the next few years? Well, we spent a lot of time talking about, um, Production, of course, when we came in, we had a lot lower grain prices. We had real economic issues and we were talking in agriculture and we we're talking about how we can support farmers through that. Now, some of those economics have changed, but this certainly the folks in the administration right now are talking about carbon all the time. Yep. It is sustainability, it's climate. I just saw a press release for a program that, that we've had out a long time, EQIP, um, it's a good conservation program. It definitely has some benefits for water quality and wildlife, but also for, for carbon sequestration. Um, carbon was mentioned in that release 13 times. Okay. So, uh, or climate was mentioned in that release yep. 13 times. And it really isn't much different than releases that we did at the same time when we hardly mentioned climate. But that's the mm -hmm. focus now. Um, there's also equity and conversations about impact of race and those kinds of things. Those are a challenging thing to work through. Um, but I really do think carbon, sustainability, what that looks like, that's actually what I'm now spending a lot of my time on is talking about as I came back and tried to figure out whether I was going to find a job or consulting or other kinds of yep. things. A bunch of folks said, well, I don't, you know, we could use a little help thinking through sustainability in our organization, whether it's an ag company or an association or a group of farmers. And so I'm helping folks through that as we're all trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's going to be a big issue for all of us, whether it's selling carbon credits, yep. whether it's producing, you know, net zero beef or, or milk or corn, uh, because somebody's willing to pay extra for that versus, um, you know, product that doesn't have a score on it. Mm. And what impact do you think that's all that is going to have on your own business back at home? Um, so, so I do think we, we need to figure out what that means. I do believe it's longer term. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot of headlines in agriculture right now, um, but it's still a long time before it's settled out. Um, whether it's what a carbon market looks like mm -hmm. um, because folks haven't figured out what they want to buy and we haven't figured out what we have to sell yet. <laughs> um, you know, it, and soils are different here. Corn production is different here than it is in Louisiana, you know, yeah. a thousand miles south of us. 
uh, is still corn production, still no-till and cover crop. It's still uh, different. And so how do we make sure that accounting is, is really true and correct when we do that? Mm. It, it sounds actually in some ways that, that the conversations you're having um, in, in, this, in your part of the States is similar actually to similar conversations here in the UK. And there is a growing interest in the UK in regenerative agriculture. Um, I was at Groundswell a couple of weeks ago um, with inspiration being taken from people like Gabe Brown. Um, do you see similar mindset shifts happening in the States on, on a broad scale? I, I do. I, I wouldn't, I would say on a, um, a, a, some scale anyway, I wouldn't say a broad scale yet, but, but I, there's always those cutting edge folks that are out there and certainly I started doing no-till in cover crops 20 years, cover crop, or a no-till probably 25 years ago and mm. cover crops probably 15 years ago. Um, and so got around the folks that were kind of cutting edge at that time. Now they're cutting edge doing other kinds of activity. Um, and I think it's really interesting uh, understanding soil health, soil biology. We have some tools now biologicals in our soils to promote that. I think that's interesting as can be. Um, but I would say the bulk of farmers are just still trying to figure out no-till and cover crops. Um, they're, not, they're not out on the front edge of that. They're aware of it, interested, watching it, um, and go to field days, read articles, um, but are not all the way in uh, like some of the really early adopters are. Okay. Oh gosh, but I, I could talk to you all day, but we, we're going to have to start to round things up. We, we always finish the show with the same two questions, uh, which I'm going to ask you now. Um, it really has been a pleasure having you on. Um, the first one is if you have, if you have a message for the public, uh, what would it be and why? Well, it certainly as as folks think more about their food, we welcome that in agriculture. I think that's a great thing for folks not to take food for granted anymore, post-pandemic, as well as just the way that they care about things. That's great. But I would also say, listen to farmers and understand. There's a lot of reasons we do the things that we do. It may be because of what the previous crop was on that field. And that may not be something that you're aware of, maybe the nutrition of that cow that is needed or, or the time frame that it takes to have a calf or other mm -hmm. kinds of things. And so engage with producers as you make those requests uh, that you're going to make, whether it's sustainability, whether it's for local, whether it's uh, other kinds of activities, engage with farmers. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, to, and, and you will enjoy it. You'll learn so much and you'll appreciate uh, that work that farmers are doing out there. So uh, certainly feel free to ask and engage and, and care. We're not asking you to not care, uh, but certainly engage in, with farmers when you do that. Brilliant. And finally, a message for farmers. So I would say certainly all of us need to listen to those consumers as well and be aware of what they're asking for. And I would say um, the folks that, that I know that are in the specialty crop business have figured out all that a long time ago. You know, they want a consumer wants white asparagus. We're going to figure out a way to grow it for them, right? <laughs> um, or seedless watermelon. Um, you know, they don't like seeds. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're going to figure out a way to grow it for them, make a hybrid watermelon. And, and yet those of us in broad agriculture haven't always 
felt the need to do that. And so I think we need to be aware. And if it's around sustainability and other things, we need to find a way to be able to open up our farms to engage. You guys do Open Farm Sunday. I think that's a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. We need to find ways here to do that. Sometimes it's social media. Sometimes it's podcasts like this. Um, whatever it is, let's engage um, and listen and create those opportunities. I really do believe sustainability interest is here to stay. It's got legs. It, it's, it train hasn't left that station yet. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that that can evolve over time, but it's, but it does have legs. We're still going to be talking about it 10 or 20 years from now. Um, and so figure out your place in that and start kind of down that road to figure out how it works on your farm as well. Mm, that is a good proactive message. Uh, well, that is all we have time for. Um, but a huge thank you to my guest today, Bill Northy. Next time, um, I'll be joined by Stuart Roberts and Sue Pritchard to discuss the much-awaited national food strategy here in the UK. Um, so I hope you can join me then. But until then, have a fantastic week, everyone.